Hi everyone, my name is Essen and you are listening to the Brown History Podcast. We're starting 2022 with an episode on Muhammad Iqbal. He was a writer, a poet, philosopher, politician, the list goes on and on. He was involved with many anti-colonial movements and freedom struggles throughout South Asia, but he died in 1938, just almost a decade before the British left South Asia. Our guest today is Zarar. He's a writer, a photographer based in London, and he just released a book, and it's a beautiful book I must say. It's called Khazi and the Garden, and it's a collection of translated poems by Muhammad Iqbal. You cannot translate poems by Muhammad Iqbal if you're not someone who's passionate and dedicated about Iqbal and his poetry. And we'll hear about that and more on this episode, and I can't wait for you guys to hear it. Also, if you are enjoying this podcast and you're enjoying the Brown History Instagram page and you want to help out, become a patron. Just visit the website, www.brownhistorypodcast.com and sign up. Any contribution will go a long, long way, trust me. Anyways, I hope you enjoy this episode and let's begin. So, congrats to you. Thank you so much. It means a lot coming from you. Thank you. Okay, so before we like, you know, unpack the poetry and the works and the writings, we have to kind of understand who Muhammad Iqbal is and why is he or why should he be considered important, especially in this day and age? Yeah, Iqbal, who Iqbal is, is an interesting question. If you look at existing definitions uh, or biographies of Iqbal, typically written by Pakistanis, they, they kind of start the same thing. He's a poet philosopher of Pakistan and he's the ideological father of Pakistan, which is all true. Iqbal is a lot more than that, and and who he was really it takes it takes a lot to uh, deconstruct. But on a on a very simple level, he was he was just a brilliant mind. He saw the problems of his time, and he attempted to remedy them. Now, by profession, he was a he was a barrister. So, funnily enough, he studied and practiced right behind where I work. So I spent years sitting in the same garden Iqbal should sit in, and I knew that, and I was thinking I should work on his book. So I would just take in the the English gardens and the, and the courts and think. Man, he was he was a barrister. He used to come here, practice, and then he went to uh, British India, and then he started his own uh, practice, and he hated it. He he says in his writing, "This is I'm doing this literally to, to to keep myself from getting hungry." So he knew he had to work for that, but deep wow. down, I mean, this just shows his versatility. So he was he was a brilliant mind who could practice law, but then at the same time, he start, he he was writing quite early on in his life, and by the age of sixteen, he had already mastered the the ghazal. And his teacher at the time said, I can't do anything more for you. You've, you've become, you've mastered it. That, that's it. He was already studying Persian at the same time as Urdu. So he mastered classical Urdu, classical Persian, and he taught himself Arabic. And, uh, and English, being under British rule, he knew English to a very high degree. And then when he was in, in Europe, he, he, it's said that, I don't know how true this is, that in three months he mastered German. Given, given Iqbal's genius, it's not too difficult to imagine that's true. So practice barrister, studied uh, law, immediately is plunged into the world of languages. And by 16, he's mastered the Qazal. So you know what's coming, right? He's, he knows what he has to do. And early on in his life, he starts writing poetry for children, you know, which is interesting because if you look at Saadi, the Persian poet, same thing. You know, he understood that the accessibility was really, really key. So he was more into nature and, 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 and writing for children. Who was he? Well, he, he transformed himself quickly. As soon as he came back from Europe, he realized, I can't just stay in law and politics. And he was a politician too. Uh, he represented the Indian British uh, League in, in the UK, fighting for the right of independence. But at the same time, he understood that he has to convey his message in a different way. So this is a long answer, but just just, just bear with me. So No, 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 take your time. He, he started writing, right? This is So I'll, I'm going to go around the way that most biographers don't go. I'm going to explain 
who Iqbal is by by what he's done and not just say he's a philosopher and poet. All of those things are true. And and the transformation took place when he was in the UK. So he came in 1905 to study, to do his master's, right? So he, he goes to Cambridge. And if you go to Cambridge, there's still a plaque outside his house to say Iqbal lived here. And uh, so he's, he's recognized at, at that stage. And he he instead of falling in love with the West, which you have to remember at this time the British were you know the greatest right I mean everyone wants to live in the UK and go to England. Iqbal except Iqbal he comes and he's not from a wealthy family he's 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 okay he's not poor but he's, he's well not off. Well. He's not he was really not I mean he had enough money to pay for his trip to the UK and back. Okay. He didn't have extra money to do although on the way back he did stop in a uh, second trip. To France and Italy and, and Spain and he went to Jerusalem. He was not well off. You you see in his life that he wishes he could travel more. He, for example, he never could do the pilgrimage, which as a as a very orthodox Muslim is an obligation, but he couldn't do it. So anyway, he's in Cambridge and then he goes to London to practice and teach law. And you start seeing his work change from this from this uh, this 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 young Muslim who's writing for children and writing about nature, who's inspired by Saadi and and Rumi quite early on, he changes because he comes back and suddenly he's angry, and you're like, wait, what happened? Like you know, we know you're a genius, we know you're a bright mind, you've studied Western philosophy already, and and he's mastered it by this time, and he comes back and he writes Shukwa. This is this is the thing. Shukwa is one of the first poems that he writes before he becomes famous. And before that, all of his work is about the mountains and springs and flowers and how the moon is beautiful. And then mm-hmm. the young Iqbal writes Shikwa. Now, you read Shikwa and you think, well, this is a quite a mature set of poems. Must, he must have written them in the 1930s, well into his professional career because it, it represents a lot of his ideas. But this is the thing, Iqbal doesn't change from that point onwards. From the point of Shikwa until the day he dies, He's consistent with his values. He doesn't shift. He doesn't say, well, I was too harsh on the British. I was too harsh on the West. He just, he just doubles down each time. So Shikwa, he writes Shikwa and the world is, well, at least the Indian subcontinent is like, what just happened? Like, you know, we haven't read something like this in a long time. And it just shakes up the entire Indian subcontinent. Right. And he stays quiet. He's just quiet. He's like, I'm not going to say anything. And and then he writes Jawabe Shikwa, and you know the story. Wait, wait, what is Shikwa? What is the significance of Shikwa for people who don't know what Shikwa is? Shikwa, see, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna go between topics. You have to bring me back. Shikwa means complaint, and a loose translation, and it's uh, it's a 32, 34 stanza poem, I think, and it goes into the idea of a complaint. Now you have to remember, in 1909, the British had been in India for what 400 years, 350 years, and humiliated the Indians who were once a great civilization. They've seen different dynasties come and go. They're at the foot, the heel of the British. And Iqbal is growing up under the crown and he sees what his people were. And when I say his people, I don't mean Muslims. I mean the Indians, the, the Hindustanis. And he's not a Muslim poet, by the way, at this point. He's, he's writing for, the, for all the Indians, for the Sikhs, for the Hindus, uh, for the Brahmins, you know, for everybody. He's, he's concerned why are we so oppressed? What is what is going on? But then as a Muslim, and he does write from within the Islamic tradition, he wants to explain the complaint that every single Hindustani has on his tongue. And so he's hearing, obviously, the young, young angry Muslim man or Indian man saying, we're, we're better than this. We did so much for God. We don't deserve this. We, we should be in a much higher position than the Europeans because the French... 
the Portuguese, the British, the Russians, they were all in India, right, at this time. So he writes Shukwa, and Shukwa essentially is a dialogue between God and man. And man says, look, I have something to say, and I'm going to tell you, and you better listen to me. It's a very brave concept of saying, I'm going to speak to God one-on-one. Why is this brave? Because within the Islamic tradition, this doesn't happen. Even Rumi doesn't do this. And Rumi is a beloved of Allah. He's very close to God in his own tradition, but he doesn't do this. So Iqbal is also not the first. Iqbal bases this idea from another Turkish poet who wrote the similar style maybe 50 years earlier. But Iqbal goes further. Iqbal really wants to kind of like grab the collar of God, if I can say that without being sacrilegious and say, hey, listen to me, I have something to say. So he goes on this long complaint. And the word shikwa is so beautiful because shikwa, the word itself tells you how you raise a complaint. It's not to say I have a complaint. It's to say you don't, for example, let me say to you, I can't say to you, I have a shikwa against you unless you're a lover of mine. You know, you don't go to a stranger in the street and say, hey, I have a shikwa. You don't say that. You say, like, I have a complaint in Urdu. You can say, there's another problem, but you only use the word shikwa when, you, when you're with your beloved. So by the name itself, he's saying, you are my beloved. I have a shikwa. Listen to me. This is why I, I keep the word shikwa as an original in the book. Because if I say complaint, you kind of get an idea. Okay, there's a bit of, there's a bit of uh, friction here. But really what he's saying is, my beloved, listen to me. So anyway, it's a long poem about complaining about the conditions of the Muslims. Iqbal he loves nostalgia and melancholy. So it goes through the Arabs, the Turks, the Seljuks. It goes through all the Guru dynasties of the Muslims and says, look how high we used to be. We, we did everything for you, oh God. And why have we ended up in this position? And it leaves it as an open question. So by the end of the end of the poem, the 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 religious, the mullahs, the sheikhs, the religious authorities of of Hindustan at the time, and at the time, we're saying, like, Subhanallah, look at the audacity of this man. How can he? How can he? A speak to God like this? They were B, angry. How, yeah, angry, non-Muslim. He's a heathen, like you know, kafir. Everything you hear today, things don't change. He's a kafir, and and some people are like, no, he's incredible. Some people say, no, he's a he's a, he's not even a Muslim. Banish him. And Iqbal, Iqbal is is brilliant because he knows how to handle this. So typically, he would write a poem in response to something, and he does this. Sometimes he would take a person's name, and he respond to them in a published poem. Except here, Iqbal stays quiet for a couple of years. And we don't know why. He doesn't say why. And then he comes back with the second poem, which is Jawab Shikwa, which is the response to the complaint. And and so you still have to remember, this is quite early in Iqbal's career. So if you ask who is Iqbal, well, he doesn't himself know yet. He's figuring himself out. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All he knows is I'm working as a barrister. I'm teaching law. I'm trying to make money in, in British India because I have to feed myself. And, uh, and and he's married now. And, but he doesn't know what he's doing. But he's like, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write. So he writes Jawab Shikwa, and by this point, he's he's already famous or infamous. And he writes Jawab Shikwa, and the Jawab Shikwa is God's response to the first poem. And and this poem is God saying, "Okay, I heard your complaint. Uh, although you have a you have a you have a valid reason for complaint, God kind of says, but just watch your tongue." And then He answers stanza by stanza each of the complaints from Shikwa, which is a genius strategy. Like, I'm not going to just give you a generic response. I'll, I'll, I'll school you. So God schools man. And so he finishes poem and people are like, SubhanAllah, you're a, you're a great Muslim. Like, you know, you, you, you redeemed yourself. Mm-hmm. And Iqbal still doesn't say anything. Like, you know, he's like, okay, I don't have to show myself to you, but this is, and, and my interpretation of this, and many people interpret this as this is, 
Iqbal knew what he was doing. He wrote Shikwa to ruffle the feathers. And because I don't think he personally believed in the stanzas himself. I think he wanted to voice the masses. He wanted to say what the young Indians were thinking. And so this is not necessarily his own particular opinion that he's convinced of, but he wanted to give a voice to the complaint. Right. And, and in, in the response, he's, he shows why you are so wrong about your complaint. So the same people who were angry a few years later, they're like, got it, makes sense. This is why we are in this situation. And then maybe 15 years later, Iqbal writes in a, in a letter to a friend. He says, when I wrote Chikwa from the position of, uh, of man, people call me an infidel. But when I, gave, when I wrote from the position of God, they call me a Muslim. And he's like, the irony. I, you know, if I speak as man, I'm, I'm a kafir. But if I speak as, as God, I'm okay. Like, you know, it doesn't make any sense, which is just funny. But so at this point, Iqbal now, after Shikwa, Dwabi Shikwa, he's now on really, the map. he's on the map. He's now, he's, he's, you have to remember, he's not huge right now in Europe. He's only big in the Indian subcontinent. And, and Iqbal has been studying uh, the works of all the great Persian poets and the German po- uh, philosophers and French philosophers. So who's Iqbal? Well, he wants to be bigger than he is. He's like, I don't want to be a poet for the Indian subcontinent. I want to be beyond this. So he does, he does a few things at this time. He starts, uh, well, he continues writing, but he switches to Persian at this point. And, uh, and un- only till the end of his life. So all this time he he's been, all this time he's been writing in Urdu. Shikwa is in Urdu. Shikwa is in Urdu. So he also wrote the reconstruction of religious thought in Islam, which was in English. This, okay. this, is, a, this is a masterpiece. It's not a poetry book. This is a textbook. I mean, it's a very dense textbook. But this was a very academic book dealing with Islam. So he wrote, he wrote this in English before Shikwa, but you know, it was, it was difficult to decipher. People were like, okay, whatever, that's fine. Mm-hmm. But then he writes in Urdu for a long time. Uh, sorry, for a couple of years. And then he switches to Persian for predominantly the rest of his life. Until the end of his life, then he goes back to Urdu. Okay, so which is which is interesting, and we can discuss why. We'll discuss um, that. So after Jawab is Shikwa, he switches to Persian. Pretty much, he, okay. he does dabble in Urdu now and then, but he's he's predominantly working on his Persian work. Okay, because because the question of who is Iqbal, well, at this point, Iqbal wants to be bigger than Iqbal. He wants to he wants to be read in Iran. He wants to be read across the Oriental circle because he knew the Orientalists. They didn't, they didn't translate Urdu into English. They translated Persian into English. The Germans, Goethe, for example, was, in, was obsessed with Hafiz. And, you know, he, he's, he tried to learn Persian. So he knew Persian was a language of the Europeans as well as the, the elite uh, uh, intellectual class of, of, of the Indian subcontinent. So it was just to Persian. He's like, I'm going to write in Persian. And as to why, well, we can go into it. But anyway, he writes Persian. He's hoping people start translating his work into English and German and French. And is watching, right? And, and and there's not much happening, and uh, uh, except except uh, um, there's one translation done quite early in his life by uh, uh, the same the same man who translates Rumi into English the first time, um, and Iqbal is is helping actively translate his Persian work into English. He's like, I want to do this. I want you my work to be in English from Persian. So Iqbal is hoping that at this point in his life, his work is now kind of spreading across Europe and but it's not what's happening not. is his his philosophical thought is now causing waves because he starts writing 
from a very philosophical perspective, challenging European and Eastern thought. And this stuff now starts becoming more noticed in, in the West because he goes to Europe a couple of times. He meets some big names, uh, um, um, French and German philosophers, and he's debating and he's, he's conversing. So he's now getting noticed as, as his philosopher, but not as a poet. So Iqbal is fine. Like he's like, okay, this is me in the West, but I'm still hoping my work gets widely read in the West. So he starts and continues to work in Persian, but then he goes back to Urdu, but he doesn't really publish any major Urdu work until the 30s. And so Iqbal dies in 1938. And near the end of his life, so he starts to realize, I am an Indian poet. I am, I am a Hindustani poet. I am an Urdu poet. I am a poet for these people. Maybe it's wisdom, maybe it's age. We don't know what happened, but he switches again to Urdu. And he's like, okay, I'm going to write in Urdu because I, I think what I need to do now is actively work on people around me. Not worry so much about Persians around, you know, a thousand miles away who are not even reading his work. I'm going to worry about the people around me. And he's writing for the Muslims, for the Brahmins, for the Sikhs, for everybody. And he, and he sort of pulled them in to wake up and, and fix ourselves. So this is, this is in, in all of this life journey, Iqbal has gone through transformations early in his life in the UK um, as a philosopher, as a poet, comes back quite, quite passionate, stays consistently on that same theme. And he develops some interesting philosophical thoughts, which we can cover shortly. For example, the hoodie, the idea yeah. of, of, of that. At, the, at this point now, by, the, by 1938, if I was to summarize who Iqbal had left a legacy of, and we can dig into each of them, He's already, we know he's an established um, barrister, but he's not really interested in law. He's, he's an accomplished philosopher of East, Eastern and Western philosophy. He realized that you can't just be a Persian Urdu poet or philosopher obsessed with the ancient philosophy of the East. He needs to understand what the West is thinking because clearly there's something right. There's some genius in those philosophers. So he masters Western philosophy. He's, a, he's an accomplished politician and a negotiator because he's been on the round tables with the British fighting for the independence movement. Yeah. He's also, he's also a father. He's also a great thinker who's, who's writing beyond one, one theme or topic. He's, he's trying to cover a lot of stuff. If you ask me who's Iqbal by this point, I would, I would say he's, 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 he's not a confused man, but he's also very, very worried. He didn't find himself settled. He didn't, he didn't die thinking, done i'm done like i did what i wanted to do i've accomplished something you see in his work by the end the sense of kind of almost contentment that he's accepted that he's not going to do beyond what he's already done he's tried his hardest so he's trying to plan the end of his life now and and his last piece of work which he never got to finish the book is called uh, the gift of hijaz and he started writing this his plan was to go perform the hajj so he started writing the book early on. Oh, he never of, ended up going to perform never, much, ended up doing it. He never could do it. He was a, people question this, Iqbal, I've had people ask me, was he even really a Muslim? And I would say, look, he was. I can, I, I can say, I can give you his credentials, but let's just say this. He, he was a lover of Islam to the heart. To not do the Hajj was a huge, huge tragedy for him. And he knew this. And so when he, when he by the end of his life, he had no money. He couldn't afford to pay for a, a you know, uh, a train and then a boat to go. Why didn't Why Hajj. didn't he have any money at the end of his uh, life? He He wasn't doing so well financially. He had bought a huge house in Lahore. He wanted to sell down his kids himself, and he doesn't pay well to be a poet. It okay. really doesn't because he's 
he was he wasn't a very he wasn't he wasn't a money oriented person. You have to remember quite even in early in his life, he was always donating money, giving money to people. So when the Ottomans were suffering at the hands of the the Russians and the British, Iqbal was delivering speeches and poetry recitals across India with buckets to collect money. I mean, this is this was Iqbal. He wasn't he wasn't worried about himself. He was saying we need to help the wider Muslim Ummah. If the Ottomans are the Khalifa, they are the representatives of the Muslim, and they are the last Khalifa left, we need to help them. So he was he was giving what he had to other people. And of course, he kept some for himself. He, he tried to you know sustain his life, but by the end of it, he didn't have enough money. And, and friends would offer money, but he wouldn't take it. And then he got sick. And uh, his his he was re- and then he was reciting poetry as a blind partially blind person. He wouldn't read it and someone would write it. So he was working on the, his last book, The Gift of Hijaz, and, and which, which Hijaz here means the specific part of uh, modern Saudi Arabia, which covers Makkah and Medina and a bit further south and east. And the point was when he would come back from Hajj, he would publish the book and he would say to the people, this is my gift to you from Hijaz. Because he wanted to go visit the tomb of the Prophet Muhammad, وسلم, which was if you know anything about Iqbal, the most beloved person to him, mm-hmm. and he couldn't do it. But it was so he he died he died in quite of a lonely state, very accomplished, very famous beyond probably what he expected. But Iqbal, like most geniuses, wasn't satisfied with what he had. So his his legacy today is up to individuals to decide, and everyone calls him something different. And I see Iqbal as a as a, as a brilliant, tortured mind who who tried to do a lot. And uh, and he 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 did a lot, but I think I think he wasn't done, and uh, it's it's a shame we we couldn't read his finished work. He was a he was a prominent figure in in the freedom movements and in, in, in politics. He he was an active participant in the politics at the time. How come he isn't as popular as you know Qaeda Azam or Gandhi or Nehru? What were, what were his political beliefs? He this is this is interesting. So his people people ask the question: What did he even want? Uh, uh, a Pakistan, and, he, and if he was a universalist, if he was a pan-Islamist, why did he want borders? Why didn't he push for so, Khalifa? So he wanted he wanted a Pakistan. He wanted a Pakistan. He believed in the nation state, and and uh, his his idea, same as interesting, Jinnah Jinnah left the movement. He went back to England. Iqbal went after him. In famous meeting, he went back to Jinnah, young Jinnah, right. And he says to him, he meets him in London. He's like, you have to come back. We're not done. We need you. And he re- Iqbal recognized his own uh, limitations. And he knew he, w- he was not a master politician. He, he knew Jinnah had the, the caliber. He had the rhetoric. He had the, the look. He had the style. He had the education. Although they were equally educated. I mean, Jinnah was, was a genius too. Jinnah, for people who don't know, he became a barrister at the age of 17, which till today, Hasn't been beaten. It's it's, it's considered it's a record in the uh, Lincoln's Inn. If you come to London, there's a plaque which says the youngest barrister to ever uh, pass the bar is Muhammad Ali Jinnah. So genius, he was a genius. So Iqbal knew he needed Jinnah. Iqbal could only ferment so far with the, with his ideas. He could only plant the seeds. He needed people like Jinnah. And but Iqbal pushed for Pakistan. And 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 by the end of it, Iqbal saw what was happening across. But you have to understand when you ask the politics of Iqbal, it's very complicated because he 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 when he left when he left British India to go to the UK and he went to Jerusalem and he went to Spain and he went to France, he, he went to uh uh these countries, he saw 
what borders do to people and he saw what nationalism does to you and capitalism does to you he was very hesitant but he realized at the same time we need to look beyond our problem as as the as the, as the hindustanis who are who are occupied by the british when you think further and he did he tried to he he would meet anybody and anybody who wanted to work with him for independence from european colonial colonialism but back in back in india and this is why his work is so uh, easily transformed uh, into revolutions after his death you could pick up his work and his work applies because he's talking about the same ideas that you could take in turkey or or uh, or libya or, or egypt and and his, his his message applies but by the end of his life he he realized look we need to get the british out they were they were in iran russians were in iran and he, he realized we khalifa is finished the ottomans are gone the idea that we can come back as one global ummah again is not going to happen so he 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 was an he was a supporter for the idea of pakistan but he's but you have to remember this pained him because in his work he never left out the other parts of india he didn't he didn't want a carved land he didn't he wasn't happy about it he didn't want the the hindus on one side the muslims on one side he didn't want this division of religion he was not he was not a a, a person who believed in these lines between religions and and we can go into his philosophy of religion separately but he I, i forgot to mention he also spoke sanskrit you know he he would translate a lot of the uh, hindu scripture into urdu and english this wow. is how people called they said he was a hindu he said what are you doing why are you translating the hindu scriptures and bal was like are you what's what's the what's the issue this is this is this is my culture as well i'm not a hindu but this is my culture this language is my language too so he was really inclusive and mm-hmm. so why is he not a politician alongside gandhi and jinnah and nehru I think his I think his poetical work overshadows it. I mean, I think his I think his his contribution to poetry was so huge. You, you can't. I mean, his philosophy even isn't taken seriously anymore. If you think about it, right? If you if you look at the philosophers of the last hundred years in the West, Iqbal's name would never come up. It just wouldn't come up. European names would come up. Philosophy in the East, as far as we're concerned, is dead and it has been dead. It's not true, but this is the way we interpret things in the West. So Iqbal was just is now a footnote. So if you come to Europe and and you ask anybody who's not Pakistani or Indian who's Iqbal, you'll never hear politician, you'll never hear philosopher. You may hear poet in the academic circles of maybe, you know, some some departments in in, in universities, but he's he's not really a name here anymore. And and this is one of the reasons why I I translated him with the with the idea that this would go beyond uh the pakistanis and indians this would hopefully trickle down into hands of people who don't know who iqbal is and but his is yeah his, his political work is not is not that memorable um uh, despite his uh contributions to that independence movement let's uh let's go to his poems what are his poems about and i know you just mentioned already khudi uh can you tell us about what khudi is and I'm assuming he also is a very anti-capitalist person too. So so yeah, go ahead. Uh what were, what were, what is poem themes about tend to be about? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. So let me start off by saying he's not anti-western, right? He's not a when I say anti-colonial, I don't mean anti-western. He he's not a I hate the west kind he of guy. He doesn't hate white people. He doesn't hate white people. He doesn't hate people who are, who are English, who are Germans. In fact, he had very high opinions of Europeans. very yeah. high opinion what he, does he, he hate who does he hate what does he hate what does he hate he so 
So, firstly, he loves the Germans. Germans are his favorite Europeans. He really? Them the, Why? The masters. Oh, he was obsessed with Goethe, with Nietzsche. Okay. He, was, he was obsessed with the philosophy. philosophy of Germans and the contributions. If you look at the European philosophy, uh, European uh, continent over the last 500 years, in his opinion, Germans have produced the greatest philosophers and, wow. and, the, and the authors. So he had mad respect for the Germans and then the English. And But what he hated really was this idea that somehow, somehow with this Western Renaissance and this, this enlightened period, capitalism has become the new religion. And, and, he, would, and he, would, uh, he would weep for the loss of Christianity. He didn't hate oh, Christians. Wow. He, 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 he was sad that church bells have died down and, and, and religion has been turned into capitalism, where now churches are closed and, and, uh, and taverns and pubs are open. People are drinking and, and gambling and their uh, materialism has taken. If you think materialism is bad today, imagine what it was like in 1907, 1912, when he was in, when he was in England. Imagine when he was in Paris. You know, at that time, you had the, the motor car just starting up. There weren't really many cars. Street lights were quite popular. But he, he saw cinemas and music, and he, and he was thinking, people don't think anymore. What, what has happened to the great European minds? And then he realized capitalism has just poisoned the West. And why did he? Well, he could say, well, that's, that's your problem. I'm cool with it. I'm going to go back to British India, and I'm cool. You guys do your thing. We're good. But then he saw the same things happening to the British in, uh, the Indians in, in, in British India. And that's what upset him. He realized that we were losing, when I say we in the East, we were losing our identity, our culture for this idea of I need to buy a new sofa, I need to buy a new car, I need to buy a new whatever. You know, I'm going to buy a fancy suit and I want to dress like a Frenchman and, and walk down, you know, in Paris. And these were the things young men wanted. And how funny, this is exactly the things we still want. If you go to Pakistan and India today, what do people want to do? They want to come to the West. They want the same opportunities. So economic opportunities had, in, in his mind, he said in, in, in Shikwa, uh, in Jawa Shikwa, he says, you know, you don't have a nest. You're, you're younger, jumping between nests and, and using the an analogy of the bird or the metaphor of the bird saying, your children, they don't have a nest anymore. They are literally without a home. They're jumping between places. And his idea is that you need a home. You need an, you need an identity. And so this capitalism, which was poisoning the West, has now come to the East. And, and, and this modernity, he wasn't anti-modernity, anti by the way, before someone says, well, typical Muslim, he hates modernity. He wants to be like the Arabs and live in the desert and, and, just, and just say Allah, Allah. No, he wasn't like this. He was very much interested in any, any Muslim who could think about reforming Islam with modernity in mind. So he was he was very much in support of modernity, but keeping the tradition and values of Islam in check at the same time. And this is what he hated. And his poetry reflects that because he he became obsessed with this idea that, well, how do I solve this? It's, it's one thing to say you hate something. It's one thing to say be careful of something. It's another thing to say uh, what the solution is. So he developed this idea of the khudi. And anybody who knows Urdu or, or Persian or, or Indian, when you hear the word khudi, you think of the self, right? Uh, you say, like, you know, look at yourself. We don't really use that word anymore, but for Iqbal, the idea and is often translated as the ego. Mm -hmm. and, and in traditional Persian poetry or Eastern poetry, the ego is a very negative thing. Yeah. The idea of fana, for example, if you know Rumi's poetry, fana, you know, it's of burning yourself. Just burn your ego because ego is bad. And if you have ego, you can never succeed 
you can't go to a higher station in the eyes of God, for example, in, in Sufism. And in the West, the ego has, has a completely different meaning. I mean, if you look at if you if you look at um, Freud and and the idea of the ego and the, and the superego, there's different levels of ego. This is this is this is very much a different concept. So what, what Iqbal says, the hoodie, and he means he means the ego, but he doesn't mean burn the ego. He's not saying become a Sufi and dance in circles and <laughs> and and you'll be okay and go yeah. live in a cave. Iqbal isn't about this life of becoming a hermit. Iqbal is very much about being in the world and being action-driven. Present, be present, and be active. Don't be lazy. For so long, he's seen these intelligent, brilliant young men and women just complaining and complaining and not doing anything. And it's like, he's like, wake up. And, and, and what's the solution? It's like, it's like, you have to fix yourself. And, and the answer is, you have to polish yourself. And the idea really isn't me. What he's saying is, become a person of action. Educate yourself learn something, learn a language, learn philosophy, learn religion, and just, just become present in the world and, and control your desires, control your good and bad, and just, just become present firstly as yourself and then as a member of society. So he recognizes the single and the collective. So his idea is you fix yourself and then you become part of the collective and, and this is how we're going to move forward. So his idea constantly is of, sinner, of inner reflection. So if you look at all his poems on Hudi, or the self, this is what he's saying, you know, reflect on yourself, control yourself. And in one, in one poem, he says, you may, uh, you may be, you, you can, you can bend on your knees to the, to the, to the Western man, to the, to the Farangi, to the, to the Frank, to the, to the white man, but you're free as long as you're free inside of yourself. But he says, if you're not free inside of yourself, you'll never be free outside. So the idea is free yourself inside first, and then you can become free on the, on the outside. Mm -hmm. And this theme is consistent throughout, throughout his work. And alongside the hoodie, he has uh, very Islamic themes. And if and I'll quickly go into this. His idea very much is you, you have to go back to the source of Islam. And he's very much an Islamic poet in that sense. And his idea is that you need to go back to the original message of the Prophet, peace be upon him. You can't, you can't come up with these new ideas of capitalism and say, if only we were more efficient in our labor and capital, we would become successful. If only we had more you know, resources at our hand, we could finally fight the British or the French. This stuff is all fine. He's not saying don't do it, but what he's saying is you have to understand who you are first because God will only give you what you deserve. So it's very much about uh, ending his poems by reflecting on, on who you are as a person. And then he's saying, go back, go back to God, go back to the message of the prophet, peace be upon him. And and for anyone thinking, well, that sounds strange because I thought Iqbal was very much a angry Indian poet who just wrote about the British. Well, that's also true. But in his in his Persian poetry, and this is interesting, if I could jump to the Persian for a second. Sure. In his Persian poetry, he deals with the philosophy more than the political. So Iqbal is what we call a didactic poet. He's not, he has a, he has a purpose, has a meaning behind his poetry. This is why Shikwa, for example, is telling you what to do. He's telling you there's a problem. This is, a, this is what you have to do. Go do it. And however, in his Persian poetry, he's much more calm. He's relaxed a lot more. And this is, I like saying this, and I, I don't know how people react, but I say, I say this to my friends. When Iqbal writes in Urdu, he writes, you know, shikwa aside, he's very careful. He, he's tasted the bitterness of the Indian Muslims. He knows what they're like. So he keeps, he kind of keeps, he doesn't say things to please people, but he's very much aware of what his message needs to be. However, in Persian, he changes. He puts on a different cloak. 
and suddenly it's a new person. Suddenly he's he's dancing, like he's dancing with God. He's dancing with imagery and visuals in a beautiful way. He, forget forget the problems of of the Indians and the Muslims. He's he's dealing with it in a very very metaphorical way. Now he's becoming Rumi. In Persian, he's he's using. I mean, not only in Urdu but also in Persian poems, he straight out takes verses from Rumi and puts them into his poem. Same with Saadi, same with Atar. But in Persian, he's very daring. He he dares to say things that he knew. I mean, I, don't, I can't say, but my guess would be if 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 the Indian Muslims could read what he was saying in Persian, things would be very different because he was he was he was quite brave in what he even wanted to say. Um, uh, and, and so this is so he becomes more inner and and uh, reflective about the the hudi, but he's much more about a much more metaphorical way of fixing yourself. In in, in Urdu, it's very much like, hey, look, you are the problem. Go do this. There's mm-hmm. no difficult metaphor. It's very much clear what he's saying. In Persian, however, you have to sit back, get some tea, relax, mm-hmm. you know, like smell smell the roses, and and then he will hit you. And what Ibal does is, I'm not saying he's a soft poet in Persian. What I'm saying is. He he takes it, and uh, if you can give me a second, let me let me read something. It's a very short poem. This will reflect the point perfectly. Sure. And so give me a second. You may need to just. You got to give the out. English translation too. Yeah. No, no. I'm only gonna I'm only gonna read the English uh, just for the shorter time. He says, "This is a poem called. Uh, it's called A Thousand Laments. It's page two seven one for anybody who has a book." So he will never say this in English, uh, in Urdu. He says, from this handful of dust, you pull out a thousand laments. You're close, closer than my jugular, so much for your reserved intents. Saying that if you're so close, but yet you're hiding, you, you know. Then he says, thief-like, you enter the garden. Imagine saying to some, to Allah, you like a thief, you enter the garden. Yeah. Did you ever say to Allah, you're like a thief coming into the no. garden? So he says, he says to Allah, Thief like you enter the garden hiding in the gentle breeze, the morning breeze. Allah's coming as a breeze. You know, he's not knocking on the door saying, Hey, I'm in. He's he's sneaking in through the cracks into the garden, right? Yeah. He says, You mix with the flowers, perfumes, and blend with the buds and trees. He's like, now, you know, you're the scent of the flowers and you and you're becoming part of the garden. The West has rejected you, the East is all confused. It's time you carve a new design, a new world enthused. And I'm going to go to the end. It says, so see, it starts off quite soft. The idea of flowers and garden and, and yeah. Allah's sneaking in like a lover. This is what you say in Persian to a lover. Like, you know, like a thief, you snuck into my into my house, into my room at nighttime. And, you know, you talk like this sweetly with your beloved. But he's calling Allah. And it's like, I'm a dis-, and then he ends the poem in the last four lines saying, I'm a disobedient slave. Now he's saying, I'm a disobedient slave. I might slip away again. And, and listen to this. He says, Tie your beautiful tresses, meaning your zulf, your zulfe. He says his to Allah, hair. his hair. He says to Allah, but the, you know the zulfe. If you know Urdu, it's 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 a woman's hair. This is what you say to a woman if she's laying next to you or on, on or by you. She yeah. covers her hair on top yeah. of you, and, and you write the zulf, how beautiful a woman's hair is, right? So he's saying, he's saying, tie your beautiful zulfe around my neck. He's saying to Allah, he says, I sh-, he says I should be enchained. He says, I'm a disobedient slave. I might slip away again. Tie your beautiful zulfi around my neck. I should be enchained. He's saying to Allah, this, this is my point. He would never say this in Urdu. He would never say to the Indian Muslims of, you wouldn't say it, right? I mean, no. you couldn't get away with saying, now there's a whole topic of 
um, anthropomorphism and whether when we say Allah has eyes or hands is the schools of thought that's saying like Astaghfirullah you can't even say it some people can say well you can say it but you, you need to understand what you mean by it Iqbal is free for all in Persian he's like no screw you guys I'm gonna I'm Rumi's disciple and he says and then he ends the poem with like his, I love the way Iqbal ends poems by the way you feel the stab each time he says they say I'm a poet but to lament is all I know what is this you pour into my heart? This dew-like thing you bestow. And it's like, you know, all I know is how to be sad. To SubhanAllah, listen to Allah. All I know is how to be sad. And he's saying, it's because of you. You put this thing into my heart all the time. And, and, and this is, and for someone who's missed the theme in this poem, this theme goes on throughout the work in Urdu and Persian. Because he's, I, you see the tormented pain Iqbal is in. While he's being silly and cheeky, and being, you know, f- close to Allah with his... And he, by the way, he never writes about women, by the way. Before anyone's like, well, is he like Rumi? Is he talking about wine and women or Hafiz? The only poem Iqbal that I know has written about a woman <laughs> was about his mother. Mm-hmm. That's it. And, and, and he loved his mother. It's very close to her. But he's never written about a woman. And, and he was in love with women, by the way. Uh, that were not his wife. A little bit controversial. Oh, he really? Was with a, he was in love... <laughs> some gossip time for a second he was in love with his german uh uh with his no with was with a was it a french his french tutor his german tutor his german tutor when he was studying and in europe when he, was, when he was studying in munich he fell in love with the german tutor and he would have uh correspondences with her and and his first marriage was a unhappy marriage he got divorced but he was writing to her and and i always find the strange that they publish the stuff after you die but you see you see, his love is so obvious, but it's a very pure love. It's not, you know, it's not like... It's anything. young love. It's young. But he is, you know, imagine getting a love letter from Iqbal. I mean, come on. I mean, he's... But in English, is very proper. and German, is very proper. So he was a lover, right? He, he knew how to love, but he had a very, he had a very tormented love life mm-hmm. with women. And with God, you see the same thing. Iqbal is just struggling. Like, he's struggling. He doesn't know what to do with himself. And, and then he writes his poems about love with Allah and Allah's hair around his neck, you know, saying like, tie me because I will leave again. And this is about the idea of losing your faith. Maybe this is the idea of slipping away because as, as, as believers or as people, we, you know, we're not always firm in our faith. But the, so the point of that poem was, this, this, is, this is throughout, there's about 15 Persian poems in the book, similar themes. He writes in a very much more metaphorical way, much more inner reflective way. And he's very much close to God in that way that he wouldn't be in Urdu poems. In Urdu poems, he's, he uses the same analogies of the ego and some other animals and, and, and nature. But in Persian, he just, he just slips away into the spirit. And, and this is very much like Rumi's work. And, and Rumi, for anyone who doesn't know, Iqbal was the student of Rumi. Very much so. Like he was obsessed with Rumi. Mm-hmm. In fact, there's not a single piece of his work where Rumi isn't mentioned. And, and in the last part of the book, the last poem is the introduction to his Persian uh, Mathnavi, his own Mathnavi, Israri Hudi. And in that big, I only put the introduction in. Inshallah, I'll translate the rest uh, one day. And he, and he explains this like Rumi came to me in a dream, and Rumi said to me, you have to write, you have to sing. So anyway, so this is this is his Persian connection. This is why he's obsessed with Rumi, and this is why he writes like Rumi, and almost identical. If you look, in, interestingly, his metering in his Persian work 
is is spot on with Rumi's work, meaning you could literally mix the verses and stanzas. Mm -hmm. And if you didn't know who wrote them and you were just a, a poet, you would assume it's the same person because there's no inconsistency. Iqbal was literally imitating Rumi and, and there's no shame in that. I mean, Rumi is Rumi. So yeah. in his Persian, he's more Rumi and Saadi. And in Urdu, he's much more like Ghalib and Mir Sakimir. And uh, I mean, the countless Urdu poets of the uh, uh, of the Indian subcontinent. But Iqbal really is, is his own poet, though. He's not like Ghalib. Uh, I should take that back. But he's influenced by the pain of Ghalib. So when if you, read, if you know Ghalib, you know Ghalib is not a happy person, right? I mean, you know Ghalib is going to stab your heart with his love poetry. So Iqbal takes the love of the lover and he brings into his poetry in a, in a in a much more didactic way, which is much more purposeful. For Iqbal, poetry is about action. So Iqbal wants to make this a, a poetry that will lead you to do something. And that's where I think this is why Iqbal is not so popular beyond that region, because Rumi is so easy to put a meme. You know, you can put Rumi into a meme and that's easy. You can't, you can't put Iqbal into a meme. I no. try. And by the way, before anyone's wondering, well, is that a challenge? Yeah, I'll. It's a challenge because I put, so in this book, right, I decided I'm going to do two things. One, I'm going to put some serious poems. Yeah. I'm going to put some relaxed poems, which soften you a little That's, bit. That was my next question. Like, what, what, which poems did you choose and why did you choose these poems for your book? Yeah. So, so the main, so each poem is handpicked and the order of the poem is, is handpicked. And the idea is that, so, but you can read in any order you like, but the idea is that you are taken on a journey where you, you're, you're, you hit with something strong, but then you hit with something soft. It's like smell the flower, and then I'm gonna, and then I'm gonna, you know, just shake you a bit. Mm -hmm. the, thorn, the thorns of the flower will spite, will hurt you, and and that's what the purpose of the book is. It's not meant to be. I'm gonna have tea and read over this, and then I'm gonna go do my work and just and just imagine the beautiful imagery of Iqbal. There is beautiful imagery in Iqbal. What Iqbal does is, this is not even my work. He'll open softly. And he always opens softly. If you read Saki Nama or if you read uh, Sicily or Granada, any of the long poems, um, he starts with nature. He wants you to just get comfortable. He's like, let me tell you what I see: the mountains, the the river, the flowers. So you 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 know you walk into a you walk into a trap because once you walk into the poem, he's got you now by the hand, mm -hmm. and then he's gonna hit you with the truth. So I picked poems that I felt did that successfully enough that this book would make people think about themselves. It would make you think about what you're doing with your life. What are you doing as a Muslim? What are you doing with as a human? What are the things that you should be doing? What are the things that you should not be doing? Um, but at the same time, not feel like I'm lecturing you. Mm -hmm. And this is, but, but this is an important point because Iqbal did not lecture people. He could. I mean, he wrote The Reconstruction of Religious Thought in Islam, which is an incredibly difficult book to read. And that book deals with science. I mean, the, the guy was a genius. I mean, he was a he could he could explain there was there wasn't nuclear physics then, but he could explain quantum physics to if it existed today. This is how much of a, a curious person he was. So he did lecture people, but he realized poetry is the medium. And in fact, Iqbal is even recorded as saying, I don't even like poetry. He's saying, I'm not a poet, but I'm doing this because I have no choice. Wow! I know this is my talent. I know this is how you will listen to me. So he 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 recognizes the hypocrisy of it because people can say, "Well, Iqbal, you're talking about action and work and self improvement," but here you are talking about beautiful beautiful flowers and nightingales. Come on, who are you kidding? So Iqbal clarifies 
in personal letters to friends saying, I'm not a poet. I don't want to be a poet, but I have no choice because this is this is the way I will convey my message. So same reason I chose these poems. I wanted those poems to come across. And I padded the book with some poems which are shorter, which will, which are more digestible. Um, and then some poems which are quite long, which will take you on a journey. And you need to read them in one sitting. And uh, and it's a heavy book, as you know. You can't you can't read more than a few poems before you're exhausted and you think this isn't this isn't reading Hafiz, this isn't Rumi, this is something else. And and this is why you can't you can't turn it Iqbal into a meme. I mean, you can try, you can take it out of context, but if you this is and and this is an important point for people who know me. I've been on the crusade for a while now to correct Rumi's interpretation in the West. And and I was like, before someone takes Iqbal and they turn him into a, a joke, I'm going to correct it myself. And and before someone's like, well, that's not going to happen. Iqbal is so serious. It's already happened. I've read translations of Iqbal that are ridiculously bad, mm-hmm. that are incorrect. And so we have to set the record straight. So I picked those poems mostly from uh, two of his most famous Urdu books, Bala Jibril and Bangidara which is Call of the Marching Bell. And I'll explain the titles in a second. And Gabriel's Wing. And these are his first two Urdu masterpieces, um, the most famous, and then Persian one called uh, Zubur Ajim. And, and the reason I picked Call of the Marching Bell is, this is a beautiful metaphor. And he, he took this from Rumi. The, imagine you're on a camel and you're on a caravan going to, to a destination. And the destination is the prophet. And he's like, he's like I'm the bell on the camel's foot. And he's like, when, my, when I read you my poetry, that is the sound of the bell hitting. And you have to respond. So Iqbal says in his poetry a few times, hear the call of the marching bell and alight, meaning get on the caravan, don't stay behind. So each poem is, uh, is like the ringing of the bell. So if you hear it, get on, get on the caravan, don't stay behind. So this is a call of action, right? And, uh, and, and uh, Gabriel's wing, is uh, he was he loved the angel the archangel Gabriel, so this is about uh, this is this is much more loftier ideas. Iqbal was very much about being close to God, mm-hmm. and uh, so this, these are a little softer, more loving poems. The first one is very heavy, and Zaburi Ajim is his Persian, probably his most favorite Persian book, and and it stands for the mystery uh, um, Persian palms. It's, it's a weird translation in English because palms we associate with with uh, with Christian doctrine. But the reason I picked Persian palms was because in Zaburi Ajam Iqbal says in Urdu, if you want to know my secrets, come to the Persian work. He's inviting you. It's like, it's like okay, Urdu is good. But if you really want to know the secrets, come to my Persian work. So he's, he's inviting people. This is why it's so critical to read Persian work alongside Urdu, because if you only read the Urdu work, you'll see, you see only one or two sides of Iqbal. Mm-hmm. You have to go see his intimate, his, his very sensitive, his very raw side and that's only in the persian side what what were the challenges of translating iqbal's urdu poetry versus the challenges of translating iqbal's persian poetry the challenges is that is that what you asked yeah so my urdu is a lot better than my persian so that, firstly that was a challenge because i well i take that back his urdu is not even urdu if you read iqbal that is not urdu man. what that is, is it that is crazy it's, it's something else it's Someone asked the question to me recently, why do we struggle to read Iqbal in Urdu? And I said, because we don't learn the Urdu that Iqbal learned. When Iqbal was studying, right, this is in the 19th century, right? He's, he's, not, he's not in a school sitting with 30 other kids. 
reading Alibaba. He's not doing this. He is a private tutor. He's he's learning, he's learning Urdu and Persian from one of the greatest minds in the Indian subcontinent, right? He's not learning Urdu for sake of work and, and just to go get a job. He's learning Urdu the way people learned Urdu back then, which was you learn the Urdu of the of the Delhi courts. You're gonna learn Urdu like you are a nobleman. You will learn the classical high Urdu. And and then once you learn Persian, I mean you can't go back. Iqbal couldn't stop infusing Persian Urdu. So even if you let's just say you are today you go to Pakistan, you find a very, very educated Urdu speaking professor, right? He he could do a very good job of reading Iqbal, but he'll get stuck. I guarantee you. Give him one of his difficult poems. He'll, he can read the words, but you ask him what does it mean, and he won't know. He could probably do 95%, but he'll get stuck. Mm-hmm. This is a problem, right? Because what chance do I have? So when I was working on the book, I had friends, strangers messaging me and saying, bro, if you need help, I have friends, I have, I have uncles, I have teachers, I have mentors who can help you. And I was like, you know, that's a really good offer. And sometimes I took that offer of help because I needed it. But I quickly realized if I sat down with these people and did this that way, I would spend years, literally years working on poems. And so I said, okay, I'm going to cut this project down. It, it, this can't be hundreds of poems. This needs to be a smaller book. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I picked poems that I, that I had a strong understanding of, a grip of. And, uh, and, and in, in Persian, uh, I'm still a student of Persian. So I had help, great help from some friends and, uh, and, and my mother and father. They were, they were very useful as well. And often I had to just go back to my, literally my dictionary and say, okay, what does this mean in Persian? Because in Urdu means something else. This is interesting. When I was studying Persian in Iran and uh, you hear a word and you're like, hey, that's an Urdu word. And, and for example, like you say, you say uh, um, bed, right? In Persian for bed, word for bed is takht, like takhte. With takht in Urdu, we can say it's like a table, maybe it's a tablet. In Persian, it means bed, and I, and and so my teacher would say, "Well, would you? What's in Urdu?" And I would say, "It's bister. Bister is it's bed." Yeah. She's like, "Oh yeah, that's my grandma used to say that." So what I realized is my in my exploration of the two languages is Urdu in in some sense is old Persian in many ways. So if you if you're an Urdu speaker and you go to Iran, you, you could get away with some words, but the problem is Persian today is modern Persian. Persian that we have in Urdu is old Persian. If I'm if I'm if I'm lost to yet, when Iqbal was learning, he was learning old Urdu, old Persian, classical Persian, mm-hmm. off of Rumi, right? So in today's time, modern Urdu is not what we our grandparents spoke. Yeah. If you go to and this is another reason people say to me, well, why isn't Iqbal popular in Iran anymore? Well, he's read in schools, but the problem is his his Persian is so so difficult to understand. Even for Persian speakers, they'll get stuck and and if you know Hafiz, Hafiz is easy. And this is no disrespect to Hafiz, but Hafiz is easy. And he wants to be easy. And Saadi is even easier because he wanted to be accessible. Whereas Iqbal being, I mean, he's not, but let's call him Pakistani or Indian. Being, being South Asian, Iqbal was like, look, I'm, 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 I'm a genius. I'm a, I'm a brilliant mind. I'm going to show you what I can do. So with all due respect and love for Iqbal, Iqbal went crazy. He's like, I'm going to, I'm gonna show you what I'm capable of. So he he went he went to school on everybody. If wow. you're Urdu speaker, you struggle. Persian, you struggle. So the problem is Iqbal's ego, and I love Iqbal, gets in the way. And Iqbal just and 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 let me explain why. Because 
Iqbal was really hard on himself. He wasn't comparing himself to Persian poets around him. He was comparing himself to Ghalib and Rumi. And if you set standards, I mean, your parents will tell you, don't compare yourself to Michael Jordan if you're going to play basketball. Mm-hmm. Like, you're going to fail, right? Yeah. Iqbal was comparing himself to the greatest poets in Urdu and Persian. So what was Iqbal going to do? Make it easy? He was like, I want to leave a legacy. I'm going to show you what I can do. So this is the problem. So when translating Iqbal, you get stuck. And, I, and I'm not exaggerating when I tell you, I would spend days on a word, like days on a single word. And you can say, well, what's so, what's so difficult about that? You just look it up and that's the answer. The problem is it can have 16 different meanings. And the problem is the way Baal uses it, you have to understand how he uses it. And the problem is when you translate into English, what does it mean then, right? So I was very careful with, uh, because my poetry rhymes, I was very careful with finding a word that was not only accurate, not only did it rhyme, but when you moved on to the next stanza, the next verse, it didn't change the feeling of the poem. And, and this is the challenge. Though. The question should be, why is the ghazal so hard to translate? Because the problem is the ghazal, for anyone who's familiar, is, is two lines, finish. Two lines, finish. And so you can have a ghazal that has six lines, 20 lines, 25, uh, 26 lines. But each two lines are independent of the lines before it, the lines after it. Mm-hmm. That's, this is not a concept you have in English. You know, you read Shakespeare. Shakespeare is not going to jump between different concept and visuals and me and you and he, he and her in a poem. Iqbal does that, you know, because Rumi does that. This is what the Arabs do too. So when you put it in English and, and you translate something and then you go to the next line, you realize for the English mind, you need a bit of, you need a bit of interconnectivity. You need some continuation between the lines. You can't, yeah. you can't say to, so if you read Shikwa, for example, Shikwa is actually an easy poem to translate. If you go to the difficult ones, I would spend days hitting my head against the wall thinking, how do I not confuse the reader between the two, the two, the two lines in the ghazal and the ones after that? That is the biggest challenge why people fail in translating any ghazal into English. And I wasn't ready for that. So this, forget language, the ghazal itself is a, is, a, is a difficult, difficult structural f- format. And, and it's, this is why, inshallah, I hope my translation is, is better than most because where people who just went for literal translations, I said, not only do I want you to be understanding rhyming, when you finish, I want you to remember each line as a beautiful journey. So when you finish, you're like, I get it. I understand why Baal jumps from this topic to this topic to this topic because it all flows nicely. So you make some sacrifices and I had to make some sacrifices, but that's, but that's a very big challenge in translation. When, when, when these guys are writing a gazelle, these poets and you have two lines and then you have another two lines and the two lines don't connect with each other. Do you think that when they write the next two lines, they think of the last two lines or do they just forget the first two lines and, and write whatever they want for the next two lines? Like, is there a connection mentally for the writer? There, there is and there isn't. The, the beauty of the gazelle is it gives you that flexibility to do that. For example, you, you, let's say you're writing about your lover, right? And, yeah. and you talk about her, her, her hair and her eyes, and 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 the next line, you you're talking about a bird. Now, as a as a poet, you the bird represents something. It, it may represent the flight of uh, the nightingale. Could be you, you you singing the poem. But in the English, or to the poet, they don't need for it to connect because they're assuming. This is the assumption that if you're reading the ghazal and in the olden days. You have to remember poetry was read wide, widely. Unlike today, 
people today don't read poetry. Back then, they knew that you had a prerequisite knowledge coming into it. Okay. If you if you're opening up a poem or a ghazal, your your poem is not going to be the first one they read. You would have you would have been raised to read them. So when you read them, you're it's just a smooth ride, and 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 you you're picking up the nuances, you're picking up the subtleties, you're picking up the different visuals and the imageries. And by the time you finish, you don't you don't go back and say, hey, why why was he talking about the bird when he was talking about his his lover? I don't that makes no sense, because you you were raised to think of metaphors and similes in Arabic and Persian and Urdu as part of your daily language. I mean, you you grew up thinking, I mean, language is metaphor, essentially. So poetry in the Ghazal allowed us to jump. And this was the beauty of the Ghazal because you don't have to contain yourself into one idea and you can jump. So with Iqbal, for example, he would connect it and then he would not connect it. And this was, this was his choice. Now, to the, to, the, to the European mind, and we are European, yeah. <laughs> are European, European roots, I guess, being Canadian, we are used to strict rules and lines and and, and order. This, ambi- this ambiguity that existed in the Middle East in the Persian tradition is dead now, right? Even today, it's gone in the East, it's gone in the West. So so you couldn't you couldn't read his work in Persian and English and understand the ambiguity and appreciate it. You would just say, yo, that guy was crazy. What's he saying? He doesn't make any sense. What is what is you know, these poets are not that incredible, they would lose appreciation. So, this is why translating Rumi or Iqbal is challenging because you have to understand the world was very different back then, not only the language, you had knowledge that we don't have anymore, and you had appreciation you don't have anymore. So, Iqbal doesn't always connect it, um, and he expects you to understand what he's saying. However, for the sake of accessibility, I made it a lot easier. I added hundreds of footnotes. And I try to connect it so at least, at least you can continue the next line and not feel like this is a brand new poem. And I needed to do that just, just to make it easy as a transition for, for readers. And, and that's the sacrifice I've made and, and I can be called out on it. So if you do a literal translation, you'll say, hey, that isn't, that's not exactly what he's saying. Well, of course not, because mm-hmm. this is not a literal translation. Um, so this is, this is the challenge we have today with with, with Wazel. You you mentioned that you didn't want Iqbal to end up like Rumi in the West. What is the what is the story of Rumi in the West? What happened? <clears throat> where, where do I start? This is Rumi. Rumi is a, is really a symbolic poet for what I call a. I'm gonna go on a bit of a rant for a second because I get angry about this topic. The <laughs> spiritual vacuum in the West. Now I, you and I are both Eastern and Western. I I often say. I'm a child of the East and the West. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we are. So let's let's accept it. When I criticize the West, I'm speaking from my tradition. My Western tradition has a vacuum, has a huge, huge spiritual vacuum. Maybe it wasn't always like this. Maybe with the end, maybe with the Reformation, maybe with the, I, I don't know, in, in England, you know, we've gone through religious revolutions. We've ended up in a in a world where there's no, there's no God. There's a so what happened was with Rumi was well let's go back before Rumi there's Umar Hayam, he became the coolest poet in the West. You had clubs. If you came to London, you went to Bristol, you went to Manchester, you go to the gentleman clubs, and these people are reading Umar Hayam. It's crazy. This is like 1700s and 1800s. This Victorian men and women with top hats are reading Umar Hayam, 
And uh, and you're like, well, why are they reading Umar Hayyam? That makes no sense. Why don't they just read Keats? I mean, they have Milton. They have they have great tradition. The problem was the Puritan values of European society became so suffocating that that Europeans realized we we want to relax. We want to enjoy life a little bit. We're tired of reading the strict orderly poetry, which is dealing with always dealing with bleak nature and bleak life. Mm-hmm. We we want to be happy before we die, right? Umar Hayyam's poetry, which is, let's just say, his, is attributed to Umar Hayyam. We don't know if he actually ever wrote poetry. Uh, he's not in the same ballpark as Rumi or Hafiz. His poetry has been written by hundreds of people over 150 years, attributed to Umar Hayyam. His poetry is very much sensual. It is very much about wine, about sex. It is very much about feeling good and enjoying life. So when that poetry came to, to Europe, these people were thinking, wait, that's that's a possibility. We could, we could, we could not worry about this life. We could forget about afterlife. We could live for the moment. We could do Kuna Matara kind of thing. And they loved it. They loved Umar Hayyam. They said, This man from the Persian world, and they never called him a Muslim, he knows he knows how to enjoy life. We're gonna we're gonna enjoy Umar Hayyam. So Umar Hayyam was the hottest poet for a long time, right? And then and then came Rumi much later. And and the same thing happened. He came around the 60s and 70s, really became big around the time of the, you know, the, the hippie movement. Yeah. When people were really throwing away the shackles of conformism and, you know, they wanted to just break the old world altogether. So getting high and getting drunk, what do you want to read other than Rumi who's telling you, hey, why have one lover? Have many lovers. Hey, why are you worried about God? Forget God. Just, just, just be you. Enjoy yourself. These values resonated with the West because... They were throwing away religion. They were throwing away tradition and culture. They wanted to be diverse and, and accept new ideas. So Rumi was just perfectly spot on. The problem, of course, is this wasn't Rumi. And this is part of Rumi. This wasn't the entire Rumi that we know today. So for the next 50 years, Rumi just exploded, right? And, and he became, and even till today, he's the most read poet in the world. In the 90s, he was printed in Playboy. He became, he became, a, he became a poet for everybody. And... And on one level, that's great. People know who Rumi is. And so what happened with Rumi? Well, Rumi, Rumi was fine until the 1930s. After that, once the translations were taken out of context, he became, he became, a, uh, he became an atheist in a way. He became almost agnostic. He became a non-Muslim. He be- well, he, let's say he became everything. He became a Hindu and a Christian. He became a Buddhist. He became everything. He wasn't a religious authority anymore. He became a Sufi who... Who, who was burning his ego, you know, the fana, he was dancing around. So this, this, this man just became something that we don't recognize. And so this campaign that I've started with, uh, with another friend, uh, Rumi was Muslim, deals with that, which is, it's fine to say Rumi is for everybody. And, and we should, poetry shouldn't be restricted to say, well, Rumi was Muslim, no one else could read him. I'm not about that. What I'm saying is, we would not accept Shakespeare today, or Keats, or any, or Shelley, or any, English poets, any German poets today, if we mistranslated them. The academic integrity that goes into translation of German English work is so high. You couldn't, you couldn't take a, a German poet, go to Pakistan and be like, hey, you know, this is Goethe, by the way. And then as soon as someone sees a wrong translation, they'll be like, are you, are you kidding me? This isn't, this is wrong. This is not who Goethe was. Except Rumi is accepted as a mistranslated poet and, and his Islam is taken out of his poetry. Would, the reason that's important is 
Rumi was a very, very, very orthodox Muslim. He was not this hippie wine drinking person who was dealing with the shackles of life. And, and, and to give an example, if someone disagrees with me, I'll happily de- debate this with you. Rumi's Mathnavi, his greatest piece of work, Mathnavi, he based it on the Quran, chapter by chapter. If he was so much a, in so much a, you know, breaking shackles, kind of heathen kind of guy, he wouldn't base his, his most beautiful work on the most glorious book to Muslims. So that's what happened to Rumi. So Rumi is now being translated correctly with beautiful translations now by at least two poets um, easily found in the West. One is by Alan Williams, which is a non-rhyming version. The other one is Jawed uh, Mujdadidi, who's a Persian English poet, which is which is my preferred poetry translation. Um, this is this was my worry with Iqbal. This is my worry with Hafiz. And by the way, this has already happened to Hafiz. <laughs> but he's not become that famous yet. My guess is Hafiz is coming soon. And we'll see Hafiz uh, either merged with Rumi, and it doesn't really matter, they're all the same. Um, but I don't think it will happen with Iqbal to the same degree because Iqbal was a serious poet. He was dealing with issues that are very specific that uh, most people don't want to read when they're drinking wine and and they don't want to feel bad about life because Iqbal will make you feel heavy with longing and Mm -hmm. pain. And that pain, you can't transmute it so easily into a universal message. You can. I mean, I I can do a translation which sounds beautiful, but who wants to do that with, with a serious, boring poet like Iqbal, right? So... Here we have it. Um, I think we're, I think this was great. I think we're done with time. Do you want to tell people how they can get the book? Yeah, thank you so much. The book is the book is available through my website, through uh, zerar.com. Spell it. That's that's the only way to sell it. I'm, I'm not selling it on Amazon. <laughs> I hate Amazon. Um, but I am looking at some booksellers across Europe and, and Asia. So if you... If you are a bookseller and you want to stock it, let me know. My goal is to get this across as many people as I can. So I'm um, <clears throat> I'm gonna make it some water. Sure. <clears throat> so I'm I'm also aware that the book is quite inaccessible from a price perspective for some people in, in Pakistan and India. So I'm working on an edition specifically for, for the Pakistan and India region, which will be available in bookstores soon in Pakistan and India. And it will be much more affordable. And that's my goal. I don't, I don't want to make money from this. I want to cover my cost. And then I want people, I want people to read Iqbal. I want mm-hmm. you to sit down with your grandparents, with your parents. I want them to read the Persian and Urdu. And then if you don't read that language yourself, I want you to read the English with them. And this is, this is, this is the most beautiful message that I've been getting from people, which is I've been listening to Iqbal from my parents my entire life. Now I can sit with them and I can understand what they're saying because the translation is much more meaningful and accessible. And that's what I wanted the most. I want these young people, mostly young people, to read Iqbal and and, and think about what he's saying. And there's a purpose behind the book. It is not just meant to make you smile and laugh. It's meant to make you feel heavy, feel the pain, and make you do something. So this is this carries on with my work on Instagram. It's always to make you think. And inshallah, I'm hoping... This book also makes you think about who Iqbal was and make him accessible again in the West. I'm hoping he is now sitting next to Rumi in bookstores in the next couple of years and people people read him, non-Muslims alike, mm-hmm. and say, this guy wasn't so bad. He has, he has a good point. And hopefully the anti-capitalism message appeals to those people because uh, I think we're finding today that 
there's a lot of issues with the world and capitalism is, isn't the answer. So Awesome. This was amazing. This was so fascinating. I actually want to get back to your book again and reread everything because I've learned so much because I think context is so important. So I'm really excited to go back to that. But uh, thank you. Do you want to talk about anything else? No, thank you so much. I think that's that's so much. Thank you so much for hosting me. I, no, I man, mean, my pleasure. I was looking forward to you reading the book and getting your feedback because I, I'll be honest, this book is heavy. Few people have finished it. So when you said you finished it, I was like, damn. Yeah, but I took a while. I took a while. Whereas I can't even look at the book anymore because I spent so much time working on it. So when someone's like, can you do a poetry reading? I'm like, really? You going to read through this? Mm-hmm. But my plan is uh, I, I will plan some Zoom sessions and Instagram lives where I hopefully go through and, and I say this as a podcast. I want to do a reading poem by poem and explain the points. Yeah, context so, is really important. Yeah, so I will I will do that. I'll get over my phobia of Iqbal. And, uh, um, I think you should. And go because back it really makes the poems even more. I appreciate it even more now that I talk to you. Yeah. Really, I'm really excited to go back and, and, and see what I missed and what I, I and didn't notice. I look forward to feedback. And if you want final comment, the, the introduction is quite long, but I recommend you read it because mm-hmm. it will explain the themes. It will give you some knowledge. It's the easiest and... part of the book. <laughs> it, took me, it took me too long. I, but I, so, so read the introduction. And I'm hoping that, that uh, poems, the footnotes do help. But... If anybody has any questions, please just DM me or email me. And uh, I do love talking about Iqbal. I'm kidding. There's no phobia. I'll talk about Iqbal for the rest of my life. And I'm hoping to work on a second book once I recover from this trauma. And uh, and hopefully you see a part two. Awesome. Um, all right, man. Thank you so much for the offer. And Thank I, you. I hope you have a good weekend. You too. Speak to you soon. Take care, man. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye.